everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. Uh, sorry, I'm just doing a quick message on my weird computer mic Friday morning because I didn't have time to post this yesterday. Uh, thank you for being here and sorry for the delay. I So if you want a more regular episode that's not about Megan and Harry and or if you already listened to this on Patreon, I did a live show last night called Bar Card Sports. It's not about sports. It's about pop culture, nostalgia, me talk, I basically walk through the anatomy of a Be There in Five episode like a playbook and kind of high level show you how I go from tangent to tangent, weave back through and figure out an episode title with wordplay. And I kind of just like let you into my brain in a way that I'm not even comfortable. Um, and uh, it was really fun. And the chat was so funny. You guys are so funny. Thank you to anybody that came. Like 2020 kind of sucked having like that whole aspect of my career kind of you know 2020 sucked for everybody not for me specifically but like the live show piece is like an income source and a tour i had planned and was expecting and when that all got shut down it kind of really was a bummer uh i kind of felt like i lost my window to do that and in doing these virtual shows and having you guys be into them like it's made my life it makes me feel a lot less alone and isolated doing this job and you guys are just so much fun and I love you for it. And I just wanted to tell you that if you want to watch that, it's like more akin to a regular episode and it just was like a good time. And I, and I, and I presented the wrong deck <laughs> uh, and I didn't know what to do on the fly. Cause I wasn't, I didn't know how to find it in my drive smoothly. So we just went with it. It was kind of a disaster, but a funny one. So go to onlocationlive.com slash be there in five. You can listen to the live show through the end of the weekend or watch it. Just make sure you go through the chat. It's the best part. Um, that's onlocationlive.com slash be there in five. And you can at least watch it through Sunday. I don't know how long they'll leave it up. Um, and I would love it if you did and got an idea for what I do with those because I think they're more fun than the regular podcast and I work really hard on them. Uh, and we have new merch out. Go to podcast. Oh, wait, sorry. Go to be there in five.com and then click on shop. And there's a ton of new merch. We came out with a coat of arms, a crest that is layered with like 500 things and Easter eggs buried into it that I explained in the live show. We have collegiate merch. We have stuff that says business casual in addition to going out top now. We have a Rush BTI 5. We have only good boys on the ground, get crumbs, mugs, Aoli Spirit. We have a Be There in Five uh, Full Pour World Tour concert tee. <laughs> and all of the the Remind doormats are back. So get them while they're hot and while we still have, I think we have, I don't know how many mats we have left actually. Anyways, okay. Love you. Bye. So, this is an episode I actually recorded Sunday night at like the middle of the night, um, right after watching Megan and Harry's interview, because I wanted to get my thoughts out while it was still top of mind. I couldn't believe it was two hours long. And I, I, my jaw was on the floor the whole time. My jaw's still on the floor. That was so unprecedented. I was so not expecting that. That was a lesson in the art of a teaser because they over-delivered in the show when I thought we weren't going to get anything good. Um, but my God, that it was so revealing, not only of their experience in the public eye the past several years, but also of the deeply, um, archaic and like disturbing realities of conversations they've had with individuals in the royal family that they were quite vague about, but I think we can, you know, draw pretty obvious conclusions. I mean, I say this in the episode, but like, I just, I, if you can't you can't have watched the crown watched interviews with diana you can't have watched anything about the royal family without thinking charles is awful right and i think that like he's i don't know he's probably been trying to improve his reputation for years now and even when they say things at first i was confused when harry said like 
everything changed after the Australia tour. It was history repeating itself. Um, and then when you revisit what happened with Diana post-Australia tour, she talked about in that famous interview she did that he didn't like that when they were driving past the crowd, they'd be like, oh, we're on the wrong side. We want to see her, not him. And that he took out his jealousy onto her and always wanted the attention. And it's just so interesting because, like, I mean, I feel like Charles and Camilla, like, nobody really cared. But then Will and Kate brought interest in the royal family. Then Meghan and Harry brought this insurgence of interest like no other. And I guess their Australia tour, they, you know, she just announced her pregnancy. She obviously is so great with people. People were making it sound like Will and Kate might have been jealous and planted the story about Megan making Kate cry that turned out to not be true and was the other way around. But I'm assuming it still is Charles. I blame everything on Charles uh, because, like, he's about to be king and, like, no one cares, <laughs> you know, or like, you know, obviously we don't know the timing of that. And it's a very weird thing to talk about, given somebody has to die for somebody else to be, you know, it's very sad. And I know people love the queen. And they spoke of her with great reverence, too. It's just hard to separate her, you know? Uh, and after the interview, which I don't say in this episode because I didn't know that, Oprah does clarify on CBS this morning with her best friend, Gail, um, that Harry told her on, you know, separately it wasn't Philip or Elizabeth, which is just an interesting thing to tell Oprah and then ha to give Oprah permission to tell the world. So it was like, right, process of elimination. Anyway. Trying to think of what else is new because I know a lot of you heard this episode on Patreon, and for that I'm sorry, but also you know I have a I have to adhere to a broadcast calendar, so I let you listen to it early, uh, but had to do put this out today, so I'm sorry if it's like a little bit of old news by now. But the good news is it's kind of my honest reaction before I'd read anything else anybody had said. Um, it's at, toward the end, it's kind of late, and I am like semi emotional and sorry about it. I just like yeah, I'm so annoying. I always cry on this podcast. But I just felt really badly for her. And I really feel a great um, deal of empathy for how isolating and lonely it must be. And worse, how people's perception of your situation makes them totally unsympathetic to your reality, which even in the face of wealth and privilege doesn't, you know, rob somebody of their humanity and our ability to understand that they have emotions and mental health issues that are very real. And I just hope people walked away from this with a better understanding of Megan and you know, I've seen a lot of memes and like videos about this online, but I, this I think this is such an important point. It's like the people that are denouncing her mental health issues, especially, you know, new trigger warning. She talked about having suicidal ideations um, and people saying she's lying. It's just like the point was brought up that, you know, Meghan Markle's not going to see your tweet or your Instagram or Facebook post about you not believing her. um you know, about her own mental health, which was very brave to share, by the way. But you know who will see it is all of your friends and family. And they are now being told that if they ever have an issue, God forbid they ever have, uh, you know, so similar ideations of self-harm, you know who they can't go to? You. <laughs> you know who they can't talk to when they need to reach out? You. People need to be so careful with how they speak about this, even if it's a public figure, because while the content might be about somebody else, the underlying messaging is there about how seriously you take these things. And like, I just think people forget we're talking about a matter of life and death here. Like, this isn't light fodder about like, I was feeling anxious one day. Like, this is so serious. And I just it's so upsetting to think that so many people are seeing their loved ones, parents, relatives, people that they normally would go to and seeing that they are choosing their own narrative not to believe somebody who's very bravely and confessionally speaking about a topic that's so terrifying to share because of this very scrutiny, um, to see people dismissing it is just like, 
it's it's just shocking. It's why like why is our default setting to not believe people, especially about women that makes people want to default to the assumption of attention seeking behavior rather than uh, believing for a second that maybe these really dark, upsetting, triggering, traumatic narratives aren't exactly what people want for themselves and wouldn't be sharing it publicly to forever associate themselves with it, if not to serve a broader mission of helping people, serving as an example of a person who was able to take ownership and to seek help and to come out the other side. Because when people don't see examples like that, they might not think they'll come out the other side. And it is important to see somebody in possibly the most ideal circumstances as a matter of perception and not reality and them tell you they still suffered. Like your environment, whether you're famous, not famous, rich, not rich, however you look, whoever you are, it doesn't make you exempt from experiencing seasons of your life where you struggle with your mental health. And um, I don't know. It's just it's crazy to me that people are so quick to um suggest that for some reason they know better than other people about their own experience like think about how messed up that is somebody's telling you something and you're looking back at them and saying i'm so void of empathy i am, that i am going to tell you that my assumptions about your experience are more valuable than your truth i think this is what i i, I just I never understand about people is if somebody's telling you they're struggling with their mental health. They've survived sexual violence. If they're, they've experienced racial trauma, why is their sharing of their own difficult experience so threatening to you for some reason that you even feel the instinct or entitlement to have an opinion on it as if you know anything about somebody else's personal experience? It's, it's so weird when people share their stories, especially like difficult and traumatic stories, and people act like it's a political debate. It's like up for discussion. It's, it's not Ripley's Believe It or Not. It's like, I just urge anybody to think about something horrible you've gone through. Sometime you've been traumatized, been grieving, have lost something, have experienced or targeted, you know, been targeted by somebody that misunderstood or misrepresented you like recounting that story in your memory is probably triggering and makes you shudder having to retell it is probably something you avoid at all costs and beyond that being gaslit by the person you're talking to suggesting that did you though did that really happen i don't know i feel like you're just telling me to get attention or reassurance is the most fucked up thing like, if, can you honestly imagine having that exchange with just like two normal civilians having a conversation and a person being like, oh, even that, let's like make a mild metaphor. You're out to dinner and you're having a horrible time at work and, you know, you're telling a story about your boss and your friend who's in a different field who doesn't work with you, know anything about your job or your boss is like, I don't think that happened. Like, you're lying. You have an agenda. You're being manipulative. You just want me to give you, like, reassurance. And you're like, no, I don't. Like, I don't care. I don't need that. I'm sharing. I'm, I'm venting. I'm, like, just think about it. It's so messed up to suggest that somebody is lying fundamentally always. And I know that people are probably less likely to do this in their own personal circles. And it seems easy to target a celebrity because they'll never be on the receiving end of it. But as we talked about earlier, you're teaching the people around you how you react towards certain situations. And then they will, therefore, move forward accordingly. 
You learn who you can trust with what. You learn people's character when they react to things that happen in in pop culture, in politics, in, you know, the zeitgeist. And the way the media treats these sort of things matters, too, because it also teaches people how we treat women, how we treat people of color, how we respond to mental health issues. I just urge anybody to think of, I don't know, think about somebody in your life you love dearly and remember and understand that over 12 million adults, according to the CDC, experience suicidal thoughts each year. I just urge people to think about, like, you probably don't think that anybody in your life feels this way, is struggling for mental health issues. But the reality is people suffer in silence. Why do they suffer in silence? Because this exact circumstance underscores why people are reluctant to speak out. Because when you survive something traumatic and then you're brave enough to speak out about it, you're often blamed. You're not believed. You're maligned. And it makes people shut down. It makes people have even less hope than they already do. And to teach people the way that you're going to respond is to just say, I know nothing about this person, their life, their circumstances, but eh, by default, nope, not going to believe you. You want attention. It's really bad. It's really, really bad. I just, and I also like people love Princess Diana, even if you feel, I, I don't know, if you feel on the fence about Megan. She's describing the very thing Princess Diana echoed in her final interviews leading up to her death when, like, a husband and father doesn't want that happening to his wife, who who is not, to, like, close in line for the throne and can have more flexibility. Like, I just don't get why pe- it's not registering with people that this is exactly what happened to Diana. And I don't know. It's just, like, anytime people respond with, like, to, you know, to discussions of, of racism, misogyny, um... In this case, even like the defense of the royals, it's like, well, not all the royals. No one said all the royals. Not all white people are racist. Nobody said that. Not all men are like that. Nobody said that. It's just so crazy to me the way people react to people telling their stories of especially racism and how people are want to instead of listen they want to first absolve themselves of any blame almost in a way that's guilty before they let the person continue because the conversation makes them so uncomfortable but it makes you uncomfortable because the issue is very alive and well and nobody wants to be accused of that but when you are the one sitting there discrediting a person sharing their experience with racism and responding with Oh, I'm not one of those people. What monsters? They're awful. No, you're a monster for choosing to prioritize the discrediting of a person over their lived experience. Ironically, it's doing very little to uh, change my mind of the person at hand we're talking about and doing everything to tell me exactly what type of person you are, you know? Anyways, I'll get off my soapbox. I just I just I, I just want people to think of how crazy it is to just be like, no, you're making this up. It's just like, what? um like and to defend like i get it people the royals are very beloved they mean something to people in commonwealth countries that i can i can acknowledge i don't understand but it's like it's not exactly like they have a a pristine history of treating people well like (laughs) it's very occam's razor to me to even be like okay who's the more likely guilty party here again I mean, I think The Crown is more like a documentary, honestly. The fact that Harry and Meghan would even acknowledge that they've seen it, I think, speaks volumes because the royal family hates The Crown. Um, 
And then Buckingham Palace put out a statement that uh, I was, I don't know. It's like, I was kind of surprised they put out a statement because, you know, never complain, never explain, never respond, no comment is like their MO unless it like serves a narrative they want to fulfill, making some of their members more popular than others, I suppose. It said, following statement issued by Buckingham Palace on behalf of Her Majesty the Queen. The whole family sat in to learn the full extent of how challenging the last few years have been for Harry and Meghan. The issues raised, particularly that of race, are concerning. While some recollections may vary, they are taken very seriously and will be addressed by the family privately. Harry, Meghan, and Archie will always be much-loved family members. I mean, I just, I'm so frustrated by while some recollections may vary. Why not just say the issues raised, particularly that of race, are concerning. They are taken very seriously and will be addressed by the family. I don't think we needed to clarify privately because that's kind of like it. It's like I wish just address it. <laughs> you, you publicly disparaged this woman and allowed her to be dragged through the mud and allowed the press to direct racial commentary toward her without defending her while defending the most menial of stories about your other family members. For God's sake, it was so bad the British Parliament wrote a letter denouncing it, and you didn't for your own family member. So this is your chance to not only, A, to not have to do it privately, but to not verbally gaslight somebody by while saying, while some recollections may vary through this crappy celebrity iPhone notes app of an apology that's not an apology, that's just stating what happened, suggesting it's probably not true, and that you're going to take care of it by doing it in a way that none of us will ever see, absolving yourself of any and all accountability. <laughs> It's just like, I know people are going to get mad at me and I shouldn't have commentary about how the royals can handle things because I don't have enough background to understand protocol. But like, I just it, like do better. It, it wasn't it was so it was just pro it proved the it's like therein lies the issue. Uh, this proves exactly what she was talking about. It's just the dismissing and the rug sweeping and the lack of acknowledgement and the audacity to say why so, while some recollections may vary is actually quite shocking to me. Um but I've been trying to read both sides of it, you know, like British press Twitter and stuff. And people are like, you guys don't understand what a big of a deal this is. They just declared war on the royal family, blah, blah, blah. Like they're like in a situation room right now trying to like figure out how to move forward. This is such a big deal. And I'm like, I don't know. I feel like they maybe like it should be. Yeah. But now I'm like, are they just going to try to let this blow over? I don't know. I've really, it's like they, they've really lost such an opportunity to be more welcoming and supportive of Megan. And um, she could have been such an asset to their relevance and modernization, to their, more importantly, representation of the countries that they serve. And they blew it with their own internal, uh, archaic ideals toward mental health toward the uh, prevalence of racism and their own like secretive invisible contract that keeps them in bed with the press so they can stay in power and relevant and well-liked probably. Uh, and it's just like so sad when you really think about it. And I don't know. Anyway, now I'm probably saying stuff I said in the episode. I don't remember what I said in the episode. Again, it was very late. I'm sorry if it's not the best recap. I just kind of wanted to tell you how I'm feeling now and tell you about the statement because that was one of the updates um, she also said in some of the ancillary coverage, like that Oprah released, that she's hasn't seen Samantha Markle in 19 years. 
um, that I was a little confused on was her talking about how um, she could like run interference with the stories about her dad right before her wedding, but that if she did that, she couldn't protect her own children one day. And it made it seem like she was given one shot to block a story and she had to choose it wisely. And I was kind of like, what? That was what she was implying. And I, I didn't fully follow that. She also gave a really great metaphor about privacy, um, talking about how privacy, it's not a matter of celebrity. It's just like a basic right in a sense of you put a photo of your child on your desk. Your coworker says, what a cute photo. Can I see your camera roll? And the person's like, well, this is the photo I chose to share with you. So here. And the person's like, no, I want to see your whole camera roll. Actually, since you shared that one photo, I feel entitled to know everything about your life. I'm going to camp out in your yard. I'm going to hide people in your bushes. I'm going to have a photographer there full time. Because you opened, you, you, you know, cracked the door. It means I'm allowed full entry. And it's like, it's so true. It's like, no. And, and we love this logic of like, you signed up for it or, um, you know, you shared a little or you have this baseline level of fame or public recognition. So therefore, everyone's entitled to everything about your life. It's like not true. And every human would want that same level of like discernment over what they do and don't get to share. And I just think it's important to remember that with anybody, regardless of your level of fame, right? Um, but yeah, if so CBS this morning's like IGTV has some of the extra footage. Um, and I think the most notable thing was like Harry specifically telling Ho Oprah that it wasn't the queen or... Prince Philip, who made the remark about Archie's skin tone, though Prince Philip is on the record on saying so horrible things on his, so many of his tours throughout his term, whatever you call it, rain? I don't know what you call it. But anyway, you guys, um, lots to think about. Hope you enjoy the episode. I know I'm probably not right about everything and I won't speak perfectly about everything, um, but I've been trying to do this thing where instead of like waiting to see how everybody else feels and then regurgitating it, just trying to be m m more quick in how I respond and more honest in my reactions. Uh, so you get them and while we witness something together, you know? First, we have a couple of messages from our sponsors, and then we'll get on to the episode. You know who is an esteemed calligrapher? One Meghan Markle. Uh, there's this really charming video of her at an AOL build function, and like one of her biggest fans, this is pretty hairy, like Suits fans, uh, was in the audience, and she like brings the woman a handwritten letter, and I just always thought it was really charming. Anyway, yeah, Meghan Markle uh, loves written correspondence, and you know where you can go for all your written correspondence needs? Minted. So Minted's it's actually a design marketplace where they source creative content from around the globe uh, from independent artists and sell the content in the form of art, home decor, stationery directly to consumers. It's kind of one of the early pioneers of crowdsourcing, which I think is really cool. Back in the day when I got married, I loved Minted because they have so many different options and so many different styles from designers. And it's kind of not like following the trends you see everywhere and the invitations everybody has, but I feel like the trends kind of started Minted. And I feel like I was able to get really unique, beautiful products. And the biggest thing for me, too, is that not only do you have a dedicated designer so uh, you can make sure every detail is right, but they offer free envelope addressing, uh, which is huge. <laughs> that is like the bane of my existence and uh, is a really cool service that I think they offer. And I don't know, anytime I get a beautiful invitation in the mail, it's almost always from Minted because they offer like special Touches like wax seals and ribbon if you want added texture and impact or like colored envelopes with white ink and all script. 
they have very beautiful designs and quality materials, and uh, I love that they support the design community. And I feel like not enough people know that you're actually supporting independent artists when you shop at Minted. So if you want to start crafting your unique save the dates or invitations with Minted made custom for you, enjoy 20% off your first order by going to minted.com slash be there in five. That's 20% off at minted.com slash B-E-T-H-E-R-E-I-N-F-I-V-E. Do you remember when Meghan Markle, like when her and Harry got engaged and everybody was talking about that engagement chicken and they got engaged over like a roast chicken at home? Ever since then, I've been really inspired to find more romance in my poultry. And uh, with HelloFresh this week, I made cheesy cheesy smothered mushroom chicken with mashed potatoes and roasted carrots. And I have to say, it was a hit in my household. If I wasn't already betrothed, I certainly would be now. Um, HelloFresh is a wonderful company I've worked with for a long time. It, it, you get fresh pre-measured ingredients and mouthwatering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. HelloFresh lets you skip the, the trips to the grocery store and makes home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. And that's why it's America's number one meal kit. For me, it's all about saving time and stress. I, I don't like to meal plan. I don't love going to the grocery store. And it's 28% cheaper than shopping at your local grocery store. And you can enjoy restaurant quality meals from the comfort of your home with convenient contact-free delivery right to your doorstep. Over 90% of the ingredients are sourced directly from farmers to ensure only the freshest produce. And eating healthier has never been easier with low-cal, carb-smart, vegetarian, and pescatarian options each week. And now more than ever, HelloFresh is committed to making sure that fresh, delicious food is available. They've donated over 4 million meals to charity in 2020, and now they're stepping up food donations to local communities amidst the food insecurity crisis and pandemic, which I love. If you want to support HelloFresh, I cannot speak more highly of how much I enjoy doing this after a long day of recording and the torture of listening to myself talk. I can zone out and make a fresh meal. It's such a delight. So go to HelloFresh.com slash be there in 512 and use code be there in 512 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. Go to HelloFresh.com slash be there in 512 and use code be there in 512 for 12 meals, including free shipping for America's number one meal kit. That's five F-I-B-E, then number 12. You get it. That clip says so much. That one really stuck with me at the end. Um, We have so much to get to you guys. Hi, welcome to the Be There in 5 podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. It's 11 p.m. on Sunday. I'm kind of trying to get my thoughts together after 
watching the Harry and Meghan interview uh, that they did with Oprah that aired tonight. I feel like this is kind of an emergency podcast. I wasn't, I didn't have another episode planned till Friday because I have a live show on Thursday, you know, but I guess I'll just do this as this week's episode um, because we have important things to talk about. We just watched, um, we were just part of a historical moment. I so rarely recognize something's prominence in real time while it's happening, but that, that interview was it was riveting. It was gripping. It was heartbreaking. It was so incredibly vulnerable and fascinating. And we got more information than I could have ever dreamed. I thought that the teasers, when she called it the firm, I was shook. I was like, oh my God, like it's all happening. Sheena Shea, forearm tattoo. But the commentary we got tonight of, I mean, from learning things like they got married three days early to Archie's chicken coop and that adorable sign. I assume they got it off Etsy. Would love to hear more about it. You know, she adopts hens um, uh, to learning the gender of their baby to uh, hearing the abhorrent commentary a family member that was unspecified made about the color of their baby's skin that when Archie wasn't born at the time. Um, to their immense concerns for security with history repeating itself for the lack of title given to Archie not being their decision to losing financial support, the insight into that media story with her and Kate, the, their relationship to the British media, uh, Megan's uh, mental health state amidst her post-wedding and during pregnancy period of time at Frogmore Cottage and her revealing that she didn't want to be alive anymore. I mean, guys, this was, it was so, it was so incredibly vulnerable and unprecedented and shocking for them to do this detailed of an interview after being completely silent for so long. And I've been hard on them in their products, uh, sorry, projects, because they, they are people that kind of, you know, there's always like a call to action for vulnerability, for openness and for um, service. And I just kind of have always felt like all the things they tout are the things they withhold from the public. And it's been hard to really understand them. Uh, I kind of, by my own accord, have what I've assessed from the situation, especially like I started out kind of being lukewarm toward her. Um, partially because of, you know, internalized misogyny and the way I felt toward being a, a deal or no deal girl just because I'm a monster. But like, you know, I think we we're all kind of like jealous, like, oh, my gosh, from the briefcase to the altar. Like, what a dream. What an arc. I, I, I didn't watch Suits. I knew nothing about her. And I pl- I bought into the tabloid fodder that kind of that was suggesting she was a social climber and the fake and the like and blah, blah, blah. And then when I really sat down and thought about it, and this is why I love doing this podcast, because it forces me to think, I thought, wow, what an opportunity this is for young people around the world to see themselves in a woman who is in a position of power and, and prominence and recognition, a woman of color, a divorced woman, a woman who was had her own career in life, who got married you know, to the love of her life at 36 who does humanitarian work and is intelligent and incredibly articulate and passionate and has been standing up for women's rights since 1993 when she spent, you know, her time as a 12-year-old 
uh, taking on Procter and Gamble to you know end sexism in CPG commercials on Nick News with Linda Ellerby. Like, what were you doing in '93? I was like making bead lizards and you know puff painting crew neck sweatshirts with ambiguously sourced iron on decals. <laughs> I uh, I was not a baby philanthropist. I think Megan's been doing good work long before anybody was looking. I think she has, uh, like, as far as I know of her work with, like, the UN, and for example, um, she has a philanthropic history that I'd almost argue is unusual for somebody in Hollywood. Like, for they, the, I feel like the British media was really hung up at first on her being like an actress and being from Hollywood, but she wasn't very she wasn't very big at all in the states. And beyond that, I don't think anything she was doing was for show because she wasn't really on display. And of all the actresses he could have picked, he could have picked any old vapid broad, to use, you know, feminist respectful terms. And um, he picked someone who's substantive and interesting and who has a life and a past and it didn't matter. And um, who really could hold her own and did remarkably well, all things considered, especially following this interview and learning how little she was prepared for it. I always go back to, and I, I believe I said this in an episode I did about when they initially left for what I've always argued should be called sis exit and not megxit. Um, she did a guest edit position at, for British Vogue and was ripped a new one, despite that having been done by royals before. She didn't put herself on the cover, but the only press it got was like that it was a direct slight at Kate who did, as if those have anything to do with each other. Uh, she called it the uh, forces of change. And in small ways over the years, I've always kind of thought that the irony of leaving herself off that cover is I think she had big plans to and will continue to be. And our gen my generation will perceive her as actually being the ultimate uh, force of change. In that issue, she quoted the four-chambered heart and uh, said, I, I must be a mermaid, Rango. I have no fear of depths but a great fear of shallow living, I think was the quote. I always thought this was a really profound quote to put in that guest edit that she was ultimately torn apart for um, because it, it is the antithesis of the Queen's motto, never complain, never explain. In this interview, she justifiably complained and, and shared and explained more than I could have ever dreamed of it, to the point where it was so it was heavy and intense. And I like sat and stared at the wall for like a solid half hour trying to process because it was dark and it was tough. And I feel so deeply badly for so much of what she's um, been through and Harry as well. And I really I don't know. It's so interesting to me. I'm still seeing mixed reviews on Twitter and I just know no matter what they do, a lot of people will not support them. But I don't see how you could be a person who is so concerned with the upholding of this archaic institution that allegedly represents all of these human beings in the Commonwealth countries they represent. But you be comfortable with, in many ways on the record, them behaving toward their own in a way that is so remarkably inhumane. It's unconscionable. When I ask myself, like, what do you do when the acceptance of the status quo is the only way to survive on the inside? And it is it is corrupt. It is broken. It has it has leaks. It, 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 it needs a gut renovation. 
but nobody on the outside can see it. So those on the inside are forced to just accept it for what it is because they're too famous to safely thrive on the outside. Harry described it as being stuck, and that's truly what it sounds like. And I always wondered how a woman like Meghan, an independent woman who has spent 36 years of her life before marrying Harry, being allowed to express her feelings and live freely, how she would fare in this incredibly uh, like aloof and restrictive context. And I thought it would just be emotionally uh, taxing on a person who is expressive and communicative and independent. But what we learned tonight is it's so much deeper than what she described as that British, British sensibility of a stiff upper lip or being held, you know, at home for security reasons or just having to weather run-of-the-mill tabloid fodder. We, what we learned tonight is, like, they were up against an institution whose uh, power is sustained by its secrets and whose fragile relevance is a function of their relationship to the press who prioritizes their institution, their public perception, their legacy uh, over their own family. And while people will dismiss and invalidate the experience of somebody with wealth and privilege by default, in some cases that's justified, you know, complaining and explaining does not land well in a fundamentally unrelatable situation, one that is marked by such great advantages most of us could never dream of. But this is a little, this is a lot deeper, actually. Um, I think this is so much less to do with their income earning potential, with them wanting to live in the States and want, Megan wanting to be back in LA, with them wanting to be celebrities more so than service-oriented royals. Like all the things people say, after tonight, I really hope people will understand that I think it has so much less to do with all of the shiny things and everything to do with how utterly emotionally bankrupt this family seems to be and how even when somebody's life was on the line, they couldn't respond, they couldn't bother, they couldn't activate. And when you look at what happened to Diana, how Charles treated Diana, how Harry walked behind the coffin of his own mother that whose mental health was deteriorated by the crown, by all that comes with it, whose, whose you know, lack of strong security gave the press far too close of access to her that I assume she was stripped of when she got divorced, which I assume is why they talked about security so much tonight, but we'll get into that. For a young man to watch all this happen with his mother that he lost at a very young age. Um, for him, his brother, his father to have all experienced that same uh, pain together. And to be standing here 30 years later. And the monarchy, their, their operations, the way they uh, welcome and train and protect their own brought in from the outside... 30 years later, that never being modernized, for the problems to still be as alive and well as ever, to have never learned from a tragic loss they all endured, and to almost be uh, uh, gaslit by his brother and father's apathy is what's really so sick and shocking and sad. And I don't, I don't know. It's like we knew it was bad, but it just was so much worse than I even thought. And it's like I was frustrated when 
in the early days, they didn't seem to have much regard for protecting her reputation. I was horrified when they didn't seem to have interest in protecting her from racist commentary directed toward her, not only to protect her, but to also protect the people they allegedly care so deeply about serving and that these comments are also deeply offensive, harmful, and hateful toward many of the people in the country, the Commonwealth countries that they represent. So I was frustrated they didn't protect her reputation a little better at the beginning. I was horrified that they didn't denounce the racist commentary. I, I, I've always felt surprised in, in you know the past couple years, especially, that they didn't seem to have as much regard for, for her family's safety and welfare. But tonight, learning that they ultimately had no regard for her life um, when push came to shove and Harry went to them expressing his dire concern for his wife's mental health and for a pattern potentially to repeat itself, stemming from the very pain he shared with the people he was likely going to, and for them to not care. The, the indifference to me is what's so incredibly cruel. Uh, I thought there was like princess training. I thought you went to classes on classes of how to sit and how to eat and the nail polish and the clothes. I thought you had so many people working for you all around you, like weighting your skirt down and making sure everything about your persona and poise and communication was pristine and, and able to be public facing. I I would have assumed you go to like a boot camp and I, I just can't believe how ill prepared she was. I can't believe how poorly she, like how ill prepared she was going into it, how poorly supported she was while she was in it. And the active role they've taken in continuing to take down her reputation um, as she rightfully left it. Because why the hell would you be blindly loyal to something on principle that is not re reciprocating any ounce of loyalty to you? I understand they're a monarchy. I understand there's a lot of great wealth and privilege and benefit that comes along with it. But even if you take out, aside from what we learned tonight, I've always thought that they... There, it makes no sense for them to be living within the really strict parameters of a senior royal without not without having the upper mobility of a senior royal like a Charles or a Will or a Kate. They're not leaving that position. They're not anywhere close to being in line for the throne. Them stepping back to take a breath to have more selective duties and to still be active but part-time actually makes a ton of sense. Earning private income to be able to earn what they need for the security that Harry really requires to you know enable a level of distance that he probably didn't feel his mother had from the press like they they if if they're not allowed to work but the palace is also denying them some of their needs even though we regular people don't understand the security needs probably they can't also deny their ability to make private income right like i i i don't think that they were in a very fair position and he can step back so he did and I think it's brave and I think it's important. And I think that we'll ultimately look back on Meghan and Harry not only as forces of change, but I think she'll be an incredible example of a woman who was so uh, harshly mislabeled as being disruptive um, in real time that in retrospect, we will truly view as a disruptor. Um, and while I thought at first it was such a missed opportunity that she wasn't being leveraged in the way she could be with her, um, you know, heart and her surface oriented nature and her intelligence. And most importantly, what she represents, the diversity she brings to the table, the ability to look like more of the people in the countries that the, they represent. Um, 
at first I kind of perceived it as like, what a missed opportunity for the wave she could make as a royal. But waves pale in comparison to the depths she can achieve outside of that shallow living. What she'll be able to do with this platform as a person with more, even just communicative freedom alone, as a compassionate, uh, kind, vulnerable person who can serve as an example of a of a woman who didn't excel because she uh, was able to assimilate herself into an unwelcome status quo. They could continue to be a part of what they find to be deeply wrong, or they could be forces of change that fight for what they think is right. And it might take years, if not generations, for people to perceive it that way. But I genuinely, genuinely think this marks uh, a turn in the tide for the royals. And this interview was will be massively important. And I am so interested to see uh, where this goes from here. So I don't ha- I didn't mean to talk for 15 minutes. Um, but I think I'm, I'm still kind of trying to process my thoughts. It was very intense and heavy and like. I don't know if I can have like astute commentary so much as I could just kind of go through my notes, if that's okay. I took like (laughs) really aggressive notes, Um, but I haven't had time to read a lot of commentary. You know, sometimes you want to go to Twitter and be like, internet, tell me what I think about something. I haven't had the time to yet. So hopefully I'm not too off base here, but anyway, we'll just go through some and I might do ads later because I might just have this be my regular episode depending on how long it is, but stick with me. My first comment is I want to live in Montecito so bad. I do. I have ever since Nancy Myers. It's complicated. Safe to say my feelings about that pergola or not. Um, They start out setting the stage with like, you don't know what I'm going to ask. You are not getting paid for this interview. They make all the disclaimers about COVID because everyone's afraid of getting canceled. They like show the crew in double masks and shields, which I'm glad they're being safe. But it's just kind of a funny thing that people are doing. Um. And we learned that we're going to find out the gender of the baby, which like they didn't tease at all. Like they didn't, the, 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 the stuff they teased was like barely scratched the surface. Um, and I, I'm actually kind of shocked they're not getting paid for this because this has the potential to, I mean, take down <laughs> this. In, like, I mean, I just think this will forever affect their relationships with his family and what they have access to and are invited to. And this was just a major decision on their part. Um, so they started talking about the wedding. And she talked about wanting to make it like light and fun. And how it was an out-of-body experience that she was very uh, ple- uh, present for. And um, it's like she woke up and listened to going to the chapel. And then I remember when I covered the royal wedding in my in my the coverage was like, she listened to uh, 1950s music. And I was just like laughing because I'm like, I think on my wedding day, I listened to like Doncha by the Pussycat Dolls, but you know, 50s music works too. (laughs) She's so refined. (laughs) Um, I start to get frustrated because she talks about, uh, like she says, I will say I went into this marriage naively because I didn't grow up knowing much about the royal family. My mom even said to me a couple months ago, did Diana do an ever do an interview? Adding that, of course, she was aware of the royals. Uh, She said she didn't do any research before her marriage. I never looked up my husband online. Everything we thought I needed to know, he was telling me. So she basically said, like, she didn't really understand what it fully understand what it meant, and that she didn't really search what it fully meant or talk to her friends at length about what it would mean to marry a prince. And like, I'm sure she did to a degree, and she kind of just has to make a more like sweeping blanket statement because people would really if she said like I googled him or my friends and I gabbed about wanting to be a princess people would take that and run and make 
and it would further these manipulative social climbing narratives that are just ridiculous because any human person that's aware of the royal family would like probably do light research and have like fun giggly conversations about their projected life. I mean, you're only like, just like not that deep, but she denied that. And I was like a little nervous with her starting out on that foot, not because that should be the focal point or not because I'm, she's definitely lying, but because it's just kind of like the, it's one of those things. It's just so hard to believe this day and age. Uh, it's kind of like in the engagement interview when she was like, well, is he kind? And I got so frustrated. I was like, that would be my last question. Um, but maybe this is who she is like, and also this really shouldn't be the focal point whatsoever. Um, but you know, she was what, 35, a 36, maybe she really, really didn't care and wanted him to have a clean slate. Sometimes I, I feel like I defend Harry at Easton Mount and then I shudder when I think back to him, like in that Nazi costume, like ugh, what a nightmare. What? I don't even remember when that was, but that was awful. She talks about, I've, I've worked on some of the things she's, I just liked how she phrased some things. Um, she talked about it being judged on the perception, but living the reality and the disconnect there and how her perception was one thing and they were aligned on cause driven work, but didn't, she didn't really know what a working royal does day to day. Uh, I again, am shocked that there's no like class course, like, boot camp I just I don't get how you would ever survive how would like she's so poised and like already media and public facing and so she had a level of comfort but like what would another person do I mean like and, and I even argue Kate like kind of grew up in like and I mean I know people say she was a commoner but she was still like pretty familiar with like aristocratic society and I feel like had a reverence and understanding of the Royal family that a person from another country might not. Um, but anyway, she talked about uh, when she was meeting the queen, she was going, they, they were going to lunch somewhere where like, uh, like Fergie, Andrew, Beatrice, Eugenie live and that she'd been friends with Eugenie previously. I thought it was weird that she brought up Andrew so casually, never brought him up again. And she didn't even say it with like a negative tone. I was kind of like hoping there'd be something eye rolly there, uh, or like disgusted. Uh, it's, it's, she suggested that her and Eugenie are friends, but didn't really say much about Beatrice. So she, when she met the queen, she's compared her thoughts meeting like the Royal family to like, I grew up in LA. Um, I see, I've seen famous people all the time. Like I just kind of thought as the Royals as famous people. But when we were in the car and I was about to meet his grandmother, I was thinking of her as a grandmother and Harry was like, do you know how to curtsy? And she didn't realize those are things you had to do like in private, in addition to public, like there was this like protocol for family. And, um, I thought that was an interesting comparison. One that I kind of understand in that, like, I don't know. I think different people are intimidated by different things. And like, I'm not a person that's like very impressed by a pedigree or uh, society stuff or money. Like I'm kind of like grossed out if somebody tells me that I'm no offense to Harvard, but like, you know what I mean? You know, when somebody like leads with their status and in, in a way, I'm, it, I, I'm not enchanted by it. I really don't like it. And I could see myself having a hard time with Royal protocol in a personal context. It's just like, what is this life? And why are we doing this? Like, because it's not something I would really deeply understand or value, not having like maybe grown up with a monarchy. 
Anyway, we cut to commercial. We then get back, uh, and even though they heavily caveated their social distancing, they're now not social distancing, and it's at, we're, it's another time. We um, are in a gated community, a small gated community, uh, that we come to learn is Archie's Chick-In, uh, and it is uh, all of Megan and Harry's rescue hens. And she just loves rescuing. She rescued her dogs. Uh, Guy, her dog, what a doll. And they have this really cute sign that, like I said, I think it's from, it must be from Etsy, that Archie, Archie has a chicken. It's just adorable. Um, and she talks about, like, this is what I love. It's like just getting back to basics. And, like, I LOL, you know, chicken coops back to basic in your Montecito or <laughs> ranch or whatever. But um, I understand what she means. Sometimes I, like, love the city. And sometimes I'm like, am I living a half-lived life? I'm always indoors. If I did, how do you – how does one run a small – a small community of chickens. Do you have to feed them? Do you, sorry. <laughs> I mean, I know you have to feed them, but like, can they eat? Well, no, not grass. Do, what are they? And it's not important. Like feed? But like, what do chickens eat? Because obviously this is pressing. Good choices include leafy greens, cooked beans, corn, non-sugary cereals, and grains, berries, apples, and most other fruits and vegetables. Well, that's a more robust diet than I have. I don't want to do all that chopping. Damn. Despite often voracious appetites and a willingness to eat just about anything you might give them, there are some foods to be avoided. Dang. They should never eat dry or raw beans. Parts of avocado should not be eaten. No potatoes, no chocolate. Interesting. And just in case you are unclear, because I get confused often, a hen is a female adult chicken, a rooster is a male adult chicken, and a chicken is what they're just called as a species. <laughs> just a little hot outdoorsy tip for you guys. E-I-E-I-O. Um, so we, oh yeah, and I, I'm, I'm, this is so granular. I made notes of the dumbest stuff. And this isn't even accurate because they were talking about how they got married three days early in their backyard with like the Archbishop of Canterbury. And it was just the three of them. And then Harry like lightly hums little ditty to just the three of us, to just the two of us. And I make a note that, LOL, that's like the second public facing Will Smith reference Harry has made because of uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air in James Corn's Carpool Karaoke. And then I remember that just the two of us is not a Will Smith song. It's like a sampling or a cover or whatever. It'd be like me saying the police copied P Puff Daddy um, every breath you take. Um, so... Then Oprah starts to talk about, like, some of the headlines, like, the nasty headlines, and how she was called, like, Hurricane Megan, and she was like, oh, I hadn't heard that, <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, has she really not, this is what Taylor Swift says, too, um, and, like, I think that it gets to a point where you, like, literally cannot, um, like, read stuff it, it's it's too toxic it's like I really don't th I think some people never become immune to it and I say that as a person that don't think I ever would um and I I think examining this like there's so much assumption of uh how far like public adoration would get you in terms of it f fulfilling you um and people kind of act like with the fame and adoration uh, it offsets the criticism, right? But the thing about a parasocial relationship with one's audience is that um, it's impersonal and people might feel close to you, but you can't possibly feel close to them because you don't know them. They're, you don't even know they're out there. Conversely, criticism is always, always deeply personal and always, always very specifically targeted. So it's almost disproportionate in a sense where people think you feel the effects of 
and I'm not talking, I'm speaking in the unspecified, you not about my experience, but what I assume a famous person would experience is like, you don't actually experience the firsthand benefit or any, like the, the, any reciprocation from this recognition and fame people think would fuel you and you disproportionately receive and uh, personally absorb all of the criticism. So then your takeaway kind of becomes just criticism because you can't really feel, you know what I mean? It's very, I don't know how to explain it. I thought about this a lot with Taylor Swift when I've gotten frustrated for focusing on haters a lot when I'm like, so many people love you, but I I really do get how the hate is louder. Um, And I, I have my day derailed by like bad reviews. Like it just wouldn't I be bad at my job if I didn't care. I, I, I'm over people to be cool. You know, you having to pretend like you don't care because I think it's good to care about well-intentioned criticism, but just doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Right. But I think what Oprah was, was referring to was when there was like bad press about Megan for like waking up too early and sending too many emails and being too or it's like oh my god I, I'm, I'm so tired of people's hard work and earnestness being perceived as like to demand like that's it's ridiculous it's ridiculous um but also she mentioned writing letters and writing emails and like writing to people so many times i couldn't decide if she just loves writing because i know she has great penmanship and has like a penchant for calligraphy or if she wanted to be like crystal clear that she has receipts you know um, so then we get into Kate and like, you know how you can't not smile on a roller coaster. That's how I felt watching her talk about Kate. All I want to know is the juice with Kate selfishly, superficially. I've, I've always really liked Kate Middleton. Um, she was my gateway drug to Royals. I, you know, as a fellow Kate, um, and as a person who just thinks they would absolutely crumble, Uh, under that level of scrutiny, under a microscope in public, who never knows what to do with my limbs, um, who's just always like, something's always wrong with my outfit, my belly button's out of the Trader Joe's. I've told you guys the whole thing. Um, I just couldn't, I would never survive in this position. I think it's an, I think it's quite an impossible lifestyle, actually, that many people romanticize that I truly do not. Um, And Kate, having been from, you know, adjacent to aristocracy, uh, having gone to St. Andrews, being familiar with the Royals, blah, blah, blah. Like she definitely, I think, had probably better managed expectations than Megan. But Kate like went through the ringer, like weighty Katie. Like they, they followed her, they tortured her into nightclubs and bleary-eyed cabs. The Those pictures of her modeling in that, you know, weird lingerie with like the netting um, has been blasted everywhere. It's like one of the only suggestive photos we have of her. And that's like allegedly William brought a front row seat or whatever. Um, their wedding was everything I ever needed and more. It was so satisfying. I, I, I just, everything surrounding their courting and perhaps the way it was presented because he's like gonna be future king or whatever. I just was like a really exciting time in popular culture that I just will always think of fondly. And I always, I, I've, I've enjoyed watching her arc with having kids. Um, I've enjoyed her fashion and how that's evolved, I think she's really reserved and poised and so quiet. And she's not particularly um, commanding in the way she speaks. But to be fair, I think she's like just a human person who like, you know, is probably never going to most people wouldn't ever get used to this role. And I think that's what's interesting is Megan had that command and they still didn't really leverage or take advantage of it. Anyway, I've always really liked Kate Middleton. Um, but like, 
the past couple of years, I've just, I don't know. I don't know how to feel. And as Megan brought up, very E. Holmes of her, like she doesn't understand the polarity. Like you can love me and not hate her. You can um, love her and not hate me. And I totally agree. Like and the other thing too is women don't need to be best friends, right? Like think of all the people you come across in your days, all the acquaintances you've had. Me bonding meaningfully and feeling like I can develop a deep, sustainable, trusting friendship with somebody is is the exception, not the rule. And most people have a great deal of difficulty, not only with their own families, but with in-laws as well. When you mix families and you kind of don't know what you're getting into. Um, for, like my husband's family was a huge selling point for me because I've seen so many examples of people who, with truly toxic familial situations. And I feel very lucky to have married into one with like like-minded people, we like the same things, like to spend time in the same ways are aligned in values. I cannot imagine how unpleasant and stressful like holidays and everyday life would be if you just like fundamentally didn't like or get along with the people that you could be closest to. But moreover, think about being in a tight circle bubble where the people that are your blood in your family are really the only people you can hang out with and or trust. And you don't have that chemistry or friendship. Like also people for, like Megan's older than Kate, like, you know, by a few months, but they were born the same year. But like, it's not Megan's not some, you know, helpless little sister that was asking you too much of her, like they might just not vibe. They might just not click. And that's okay too. I want, I wanted them to be best friends for my own enjoyment. Wimbledon was one of the more exciting sports moments of my life. Um, But what was interesting here is that like Oprah asked about Wimbledon, like it looked like he was very fun and laughing and blah, blah, blah. And she didn't, she simply did not ever suggest that she was having fun. And all she said was, things are not what they look like. Like, that's the thing is things are not what they look like. So she completely uh, dismissed that, which I thought was interesting. But I think even before they got there, so when Oprah's bringing up rumors like Hurricane Megan, she says, um, there was a rumor about you making Kate Middleton cry. And Megan says that was a turning point and that the narrative with Kate didn't happen. And Oprah's like, Okay, Oprah crushed this. She was outstanding. She asked tough questions. She didn't respond. So some people I noticed like thought she was being a little bit like aloof or distant. But I actually, A, I think that um, she was having to pretend like this was the first time she was hearing stuff because they live close together. And I assume they're friends and they've talked about this at length. Like there's no way, right? Um, But even if that's not true, which is fine if it is, um, I think that, she was trying to be objective. She was trying to get the most information possible out of her. And that like, I'm, I'm not a journalist or a good interview. I'm too empathetic of like, I can gauge someone's energy discomfort and I will not press them. Like I will never, my priority is the comfort of the person I'm interviewing over the information that they're sharing because I can't be in the presence of somebody whose comfort I'm not prioritizing, but there's a separation there when you're a legitimate journalist and doing a legitimate interview and true masters of their craft or craft are able to emit a level of understanding and empathy and the style and cadence in which they ask questions, but still be uh, pretty uh, curt in insisting they get the answer they need. And I think Oprah is just like, it's funny. I'm not like, I don't really have, I mean, I, I mean, people love Oprah. I, just, I don't have like, I didn't grow up watching her that much. I don't have like one opinion or the other. I just kind of am like neutral. 
Um, but like, I, I guess I've never really paid attention to her interview skills. Like, obviously she's great at her job. I, what I mean is like, I'm neutral toward Oprah and that I just feel like it's pretty widely accepted that she's, she's great. Right. Uh, but I was just paying a lot closer attention to her skill set, And with the Kate thing, Megan was not being straightforward and she just kept being like, okay, did you make Kate cry? No. Okay. Did Kate make you cry? And she would be like, well, the reverse came out. And she was like, okay, so when you say the reverse, what do you mean? Did Kate make you cry? And she was like, yes. And she's like, okay, but why? And she asked like 12 times. And basically, so it sounds like Kate made Megan cry. Our last advertiser is a, a favorite of mine, especially as of recently. It is Feels CBD. CBD, it's it's a product I've used for a long time, but I waited a while to partner with a company because I, I think the CBD landscape is really tough to navigate, especially if you're new to it. And I wanted to work with a company with a high quality formula and that supports their customers because I think at the beginning, especially understanding dosing and what's right for you is really important. And I love feels not only because it helps to naturally kind of uh, reduce stress and tension. And for me, I take it before bed. Um, and there's, you know, with CBD, there's no high, there's no hangover. It's works naturally to help you feel better. Um, but beyond that, if, especially if you're new to CBD, they offer a free CBD hotline to help guide your personal experience. And I don't know, I just remember feeling kind of overwhelmed with what to do and how it works. Uh, and I just think this is a really nice feature. I was kind of opposed to like sublingual drops, but once I started doing them, I'll never turn back because the taste is not off-putting at all and when you place a few drops of feels under your tongue you can kind of feel the difference within minutes and I don't know it's just it's great if you join the feels community you can get the product delivered to your door every month and save money on every order you can pause or cancel anytime and what I actually really like too is that they offer a flight if you want to try different uh, products so I think it's like a little set of three where you can test out three different levels of strength if you will um, and you can find that on their website too, but, uh, feels has me feeling, uh, my best every day and it can help you too. become a member today by going to feels.com slash be there in five and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F E A L S.com slash be there in five to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping feels.com slash be there in five. Don't forget it's F E A A F E A L S. <laughs> If you love listening to podcasts, I assume you also love listening to audio books, and there is no one better than Audible. It is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment all in one place. You can find the largest selection of audiobooks from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, my favorite category, languages, businesses, motivation, and more original entertainment content. They, well, if we read, we did a deep dive into the Omid Scobie book, Finding Freedom About Megan and Harry, that I listened to on Audible, that I think a lot of you did with your trial. And uh, if you haven't listened, I highly suggest it. It really kind of echoes a lot of what she said in the interview. And then what you can go listen to our recap. But they have so many other titles too. And with their new plan, Audible Plus, they give you full access to their popular Plus catalog, where you can listen to thousands and thousands of popular audiobooks, original entertainment, and podcasts, including ad free versions of your favorite shows and exclusive series. They also have guided fitness meditation and sleep tracks for better rest, which I'm a huge fan of a sleep meditation track. All available to download and stream so you can listen to it on any device. I'm a huge fan of listening to audiobooks when I'm, you know, 
cooking, walking, cleaning, doing anything. It's a great way to keep myself company when I run out of podcasts and even want to find more podcasts. So if you visit audible.com slash be there in five or text be there in five to five zero zero five zero zero, you can try Audible Plus or Audible Premium Plus free for one month which is great. I love to try try before I buy. Um, visit audible.com slash be there in five or text be there in five to five zero zero five zero zero. But she said Kate owned it and apologized and took accountability and she forgave her. But then this story came out six to seven months after it happened. Um, and basically what had happened is that a few days before the wedding, Kate was upset about the flower girl dresses and it made Megan cry because she, Megan felt like in the context leading up to the wedding, it didn't really make sense why she wouldn't be supportive. And then there was this weird thing that I, I kept trying to figure out what she was saying because she got cut off. There was a few times when they, like Megan or Harry was about to say something and they, and Oprah did cut them off a little bit. But I wonder if this was like really drawn out and long and like they needed them to get to a point and they were kind of dancing a bit. In some ways, Megan didn't dance at all. And in some ways she really was. And I think Oprah managed it well. Um, but basically that Megan started to say the people involved with the wedding told the comms team and then Oprah cut her off. And then Megan said they were all told to say nothing when the story came out. And she said, maybe Kate tried to refute it and the palace wouldn't let her either. The fact that she doesn't know that's interesting to me though, right? The fact that they wouldn't have a conversation like, it's so weird that it's out. We've already resolved this. What did you do from your end? What did you do from mine? The fact that that communication isn't there is really interesting to me. Let me look up a couple. I feel like I didn't present that well. The biggest thing here, too, is that she says this was a turning point. So the narrative with Kate, which didn't happen, it was really, really difficult. I think that's when everything changed. And I'm still I'm a little confused, like how this small event, like I just feel like relative to the other press, like why this was a turning point. But I guess it's because. It was the moment when she realized, like, nobody was in her corner. Um, Margle never made Middleton cry. The reverse happened. I, I say that not to be disparaging to anyone because it was a really hard week, and she was upset about something. She owned it and apologized, and she brought me flowers and a note apologizing. She did what I would do if I knew I hurt someone, just to just take accountability for it. I would have never wanted that to come out about her, ever. Even though even though it had happened, I protected her from ever – I protected that from ever being out in the world. Um, a few days before the wedding, Middleton was upset about flower girl dresses and it made Markle upset. It really hurt my feelings. I thought in the context of everything that was going on in those days leading to the wedding that it, oh yeah, it didn't make sense to not just be doing what everyone else was doing, which was being supportive, knowing what was going on with my dad and whatnot. He said it was hard to get over being blamed for something that not only I didn't do, but that happened to me and that the people who were a part of our wedding going to our comms team and saying, I know this didn't happen, but they were told to say nothing. Um, the other thing that like, we, we never got into the turnover of her staff, which I feel like was a big topic of controversy, but maybe it's because they didn't feel like people were vouching for them and they were kind of team institution and not team Megan and Harry, which you would hope they'd first and foremost represent their best interest. The other thing too, that I think was a turning point for Harry and his brother that isn't spoken about is like the era of the affair rumors. Right. And I feel like there might've been something unspoken there with like, them working overtime to protect William and Megan's stories almost serving as a distraction and her never being 
defended, you know. And then I wrote down that next they go over like more stories in the bump cradling. And it was a little confusing because Megan was like, oh, God, have I like been doing it this whole time? But then Oprah read the headlines about bump cradling and she seemed like appalled and disgusted. So it was kind of like she half knew that people like she got bad press about that. But then she was half surprised. I don't know. It was a little bit confusing. Um, and then they compare headlines from her to Kate, which I've shared in previous episodes before, um, how like pregnant Kate tenderly cradles her baby bump while wrapping her royal duties ahead of maternity leave. Why can't Meghan Markle keep her hands off her bump? Experts tackle the question. It has a nation talking. Is it pride, vanity, or acting? Or a new age bonding technique? Like, what are you talking? And that's what she was appalled by. She's like, pride, vanity. It's like a woman touching her pregnant belly. Like, shut up. And then it was like Kate's morning sickness cure. Prince William gifted with an avocado for pregnant duchess. Meghan Markle's beloved avocado linked to human rights abuse and drought, comma, millennial shame. And it was like a little funny because she was like, well, that's a loaded piece of toast. And it was like a moment of levity because uh, like to suggest Kate's avocados are a morning sickness cure, but Megan's are, you know, the cause of environmental detriment and deforestation. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. Um, and they talk about how, like, they want a hero and a villain, um, so on and so forth. And then they have this conversation about, like, okay, um, like it was kind of like, how did you, like you're, you, you came in as an American divorcee, an independent woman, a mixed race woman, and your story was different. And I don't know if she, what she means by different, if it's like different than Kate, cause it was kind of a segue. And she said, well, I thought about it because they made me think about it. She said that, thank God those things are true. My background, the value of working. My first job at 13, I worked at a yogurt shop called Humphrey Yogurt, <laughs> which made me laugh. Great play on words. Um, I've always worked. I've always valued independence. I've always advocated for women's rights and thought it was pointing that she points out that the sad irony is that she's always advocated for women but has spent the past four years being silenced. And that's why I think she like spoke volumes and little things like the edit or ensembles when she could or small speeches here and there i think she's always been trying to get out this message that was hard for people to hear amidst the overarching highly misogynistic sexist racist overtones of her press coverage that you had to kind of look for but it was always there um and when she, that's when oprah asks like the million dollar question you know after she says, for four, for so long I was silenced after advocating for women for so long. And then Oprah says, were you silent or silenced? Um, and she said, everyone in this world is given clear directive to always say no comment. I did anything they told me to do. It was through the lens of we will protect you. She said she believed she was being protected. It was not. It was only once we were married and everything started to worsen that not only was she not being protected, but they... I'm switching. These, these are my frantic notes. I'm switching between the uh, first and third person. Um, uh, it was only once they were married and everything started to worsen that not only was she not being protected, but they were willing to lie to protect other members, but not tell the truth to protect me and my husband. And that's like probably the most important quote here. It's there's a lot about like protection and security. It's um, not only were 
not only was I not being protected, but they were willing to lie to protect other members, but not tell the truth to protect me, which is like very in, like interesting when you think about it. Um, like she was the one, like they were willing to take her down despite it not being true to lift another up by lying. And it's just like that. Like I can't imagine how crazy you would go. Um, and, this is also when she talks about the queen. I wrote down that she says it's a family business. There's the family and then there's people running the institution. And this is the part that was like, there's really specific talking points, but the who was doing it was so vague. It was a lot of they, them. It's like, who? Very uh, Kelly Dodd, Shannon Medora exchange. Um, she talks about how lovely the queen is and how she loved being in her company. And she's always been wonderful to her. She gave her earrings and a necklace, that first engagement uh, that morning when they were on the train or when they were in the car, like the queen was cold and she put the blanket over Megan's knees. And like, you know, I'm, I'm charmed by an anecdote like that. Um, but I'm just still like, who is silencing you? Is there some like commander in chief type, the, you know, of the firm that like has control over everyone. Or are you basically just talking about Prince Philip, the queen, but you won't throw them under the bus because Prince will, will Philip isn't in good health and everyone respects the queen's legacy too much. So you're vaguely saying they, them and not naming Charles and Camilla, who I assume are the source of most of the problems. And then will and Kate are like complicit. And he mentions he's compassionate because like Charles and will are stuck and part of me doesn't know if, like, Will's a little stuck in that he has to be somewhat complicit uh, toward his, you know, his father. Um, but I, I I still don't know. It doesn't make it right or better. It just, I, I, the whole time I was like, who? Who are you talking about? Um, and then when Oprah brings up Wimbledon, it was interesting because she said at first everyone welcomed her. But what it there was what it looked like and that her experience is nothing that it looks like in terms of them having fun at Wimbledon. So she just never answers and does not suggest she had any fun. And I'm just I, again, women don't have to be best friends, but I don't know. You can usually pregame with a couple glasses of wine and have a laugh with a fake gal pal. Uh, <laughs> and she said that. Like small things like, can I go to lunch with my friends that somebody would come to the house and be like, no, you're oversaturated, that she left the house twice in four months. There's an obsession with how it looks, but nobody asks or cares how it feels. It's, in my opinion, it's kind of like fame, but with no perks. Um, then I make a note said Greg came in. I have to talk to him because he's telling me that she is complaining. He is not he is not pay attention to the royals whatsoever. And he has like a big issue with like the construct of a monarchy. Um and like taxpayer figureheads essentially. It's a broader conversation we've that we've discussed. Um but he was kind of he only heard like, I can't go to lunch with my friends. And then I was like, I had to hit pause and be like, Yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> so then I got distracted. <laughs> um she said that she had been asking for help for a long time after the Australia tours when things really changed and when the Kate story came out. They'd go on the record and negate the most ridiculous story for anyone but her. And then we get into, um, okay, I need to like cross check this with like somebody else's notes or an article. Um, because I am worried I'm missing. 
something. I definitely, my notes suffered when Greg came in the room. Love him, but, you know, I just can't, I can't explain everything to everyone. <laughs> oh, but I, no, I think this is when they started talking about the baby's skin color. We were both, like, shook. I, I, I mean, shocked, appalled, horrified. I did not expect her to say something like that. It's like, I'm not naive enough to think that this behavior doesn't exist, but like for this to be communicated to Harry on multiple occasions is just, it's so disgusting and just goes to show how rampant and deep racism runs to the point where something like this could be said out of somebody's mouth in a commonplace manner, as if this is like a, a topic of conversation. Is this, this is something you bring up? Let me just read the direct quote so I don't miss words. I just like, it's one, it's one of those things where, I I have shortcomings in the way I can talk about topics related to race because it's not something I've directly experienced. And it's something I've learned a lot about in recent years, especially. And like, okay, for example, at the Royal, I'm, I'm like horrified because this is not something that I thought through. I remember when Megan and Harry got married, I was really frustrated by her hair. Like the way I kind of picked it on her hairstylist of not pinning it in the right way or like what I deemed was right, which is just like rude, period. Because um, it kind of had fallen in her face. But like the audacity of me, a white woman, to comment on a black woman's hair is uh, it's obscene and, and should never be a topic of conversation. And like the so much that commentary on her hair was like rampant and I like I, I contributed to it I don't know I just feel like they're and just like loving the royals and over time becoming such a Meghan Markle fan I I definitely missed a lot of the racial undertones especially at first and now I see it, but then I couldn't really make that distinction until it was pointed out to me, which I, I absolutely hate, by the way. Um, and I say all that just to be forthcoming and like, I I think that when I hear of like such deliberate, disgusting, uh, racially charged behavior, my response as a person that doesn't experience this directly is like shock and disgust, but there's a naivete that comes with that shock and disgust that kind of denies its prevalence. And I don't want to do that either. Um, because I think the, like, I don't see color bullshit. Like is it's, you're telling people you don't see them, right. You're not acknowledging their experience. And um, I think that, my response is just like, why? Like, why does it matter? Why would that be brought up? Like, why? It's almost like I'm looking for uh, a conclusion in an inherently inconclusive issue because there is no conclusion to something that is just like fundamentally hateful, intolerant, and insensitive, right? Like, there's no reason to say that. That's a, therein lies the issue. But I, I guess it's like, it's such an unusual thing to me that is maybe a product of my naivete that I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, why would you, why would that ever be a topic of conversation? It's, it's horrible. And like, I mean, I hate to say it, but the first thing I thought of was, um, so when Diana, Diana did an interview in 91 later published by Andrew Morton. And she talks about this rift in her marriage with Charles following, um, Harry's birth. She hid from Charles that it was a boy cause Charles really wanted a girl and when Harry, like right after he was born, Charles said, 
uh, like he was really dismissive and rude and said like, oh God, it's a boy. And then he said, and he's even got red hair. And he was really, really rude about um, the way Harry being a boy and the way Harry looked. And like, I just can't help but think like, God, is there something there with like obsessing over how these babies look? Like, what do you, and like, what does it matter? Like, I, again, it's just, it's disgusting. And I just, I don't even know, but let me just read to you what she said. So I'm not mincing words. In the months when I was pregnant, there were concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he was born. Concerns and conversations. Like, what? And obviously Oprah's shocked. And Oprah says, again, like, who who was having these conversations? And Megan said, I think that would be very despair, very, would you say damaging or disparaging to them? And like... I don't know. It's like they're saying just enough, but not targeting it toward people. I I I feel like all of this was basically about Charles, Camilla, William, and Kate to a degree. Mostly Charles. Camilla's name was never uttered. Um muttered? Uttered? <laughs> um I don't know. My money's on Charles being the thorn, being the archaic problem, being the person who was a dick then and he's a dick now and he's refusing to modernize or bend for anybody. Um, I think the queen has exhibited a lot of like strength and is a, done, has had a tremendously respect, respectable and impressive run as the queen, often probably trying to do the best she can in the time she's in with what she knows in her very unusual circumstances. And I say that only because I've watched The Crown, but oftentimes I'm utter, I'm furious with her and I don't even know how to feel about her sometimes now. Um, but they they spoke so highly of her. They even talked about calling Prince Philip when he was in bad health. I feel like they strategically met, said, you know, I think Kate's a good person. They strategically planted their... Um, almost acceptance or uh, affinity towards certain people while deliberately withholding it about William and Charles. And I think Charles is the problem. And I think William's complicit. That's my take that I have no evidence for. Um, but then, uh, oh yeah. So then Harry, when Harry comes out, I'm skipping all over now. Oprah asked him to elaborate on the verbiage of that conversation and he said, that conversation I'm never going to share, but the timing was awkward. I was a bit shocked. It was right at the beginning when Megan wasn't going to get security, when members of my family were suggesting that she carries on acting because there's not enough money to pay for her. Those were some real obvious signs before we got married that this was going to be really hard. I thought that was interesting. I, if anything, I'd assume they would not want her to be acting anymore. Um, but also, this is when Greg was in the room, and we then I paused and we had a conversation about, like, are they like low-key secretly broke? And I know they're like allegedly not, but also I think that they're like kind of spooked and really having to fight for their like relevance <laughs> and like not being overthrown uh, as a monarchy, like they're figureheads, right? Like I don't even know the realities of that or understand the uh, political science landscape, but um, we're just kind of like oh, so many conversations, especially with security, seemed like it was like a money thing when you just don't think that that would be within question. And maybe it's just a power move and their ability to withhold it. But it seems like, you know, such a obvious trigger in terms of like what, what you know will get to Harry is the knowledge that Diana's security, that the, 
the barrier between her and the press at the time of her death, like it just was not where it needed to be. And she was utterly harassed. And I don't know if she lost her security post-divorce. I don't know what role this played in the car accident. Um, but I think that safety is paramount, understandably, to Harry, who was triggered by the death of his mother, to his wife, who feels unsafe and is receiving death threats and, and uh, hatred, common, hateful and racist commentary left and right. Their, their newborn son, are you kidding me? You do anything in your power to keep your family safe. And um, withholding of security is really weird. And I guess it's a power move, but I don't know. Greg kind of thinks they there's like a financial issue. Um and also the uh, race conversation comes into play when they talk about uh, the royal family's reluctance to give Archie a prince title. So he's the grandson of the future king, the direct grandson. And Megan said that the palace didn't want to make Archie a prince. He wasn't going to receive security. This went on for the last few months of our pregnancy. And I'm going, hold on a second. He needs to be safe. She remembers thinking when the palace made this decision. Oprah asked Megan how she was told Archie wasn't going to be a prince. And she said there's no explanation. It was a decision they felt was appropriate. On whether being called Ar Archie being called a prince was important to her, she said if it meant he was going to be safe, then of course. All the grandeur surrounding this stuff is an attachment I don't personally have. What was confusing to me about this piece is that, so they didn't, I'm reading my, so my notes make no sense. I said, they didn't want Archie to be a prince or princess, depending on his gender. He, and he wasn't going to receive security. Prince Harry's son won't get security because he's not a prince. The title is what affects the protection. And they, the fam, royal family is what has allowed all the media, like Hurricane, to happen so they should be responsible for keeping him safe. She says it was not us who didn't want to give him a title and that she doesn't know why he's not a prince and that Grandor is not an attachment she has. And then, yeah, they're the grandchild of the monarch. Normally, they'd automatically become a prince or princess. They wanted to change the convention for Archie while she was pregnant, and she didn't get an answer. But then she says it wasn't their decision to make, but then she also said it wasn't her decision to make. So I don't, I'm not clear whose decision it was. Um, and then she talks about, and Oprah's like, so you guys decided not to take a picture. And she's like, we weren't asked to take a picture. So it's so interesting. Like all, like that was my impression too. They were just like, we want our privacy. And I remember feeling a little annoyed, like, uh, you know, it, it, like there, there were times when I was like, if you're on the taxpayer dollar and you're a working member of the family, unfortunately family like does overlap to a degree, and there are going to be like moments of your personal life that have to be for show. Like I, I genuinely get that. Um, but then I also deeply understand like as a new mother being postpartum, your first child, like, I mean, my God, it would be the last thing you'd ever want to do and nothing I'd want to push upon or force anybody into. And they, they did do an appearance too, which is, I'm kind of confused by. Um, so when you think about this process, she's being like, maliciously bullied by the press she's alone she's not allowed to leave her house go get lunch with a friend um her son's you know skin tone is being discussed not to her but you know behind closed doors he's not being given a title nor security um and like what what is she supposed to think i mean it's just like it's 
I don't know. That part was crazy to me, too, that, like, that she just wasn't given an answer. And the convention might have been changed, like, while she was pregnant. And, like, I, the, the desire to not give Archie security and then to cut off Harry financially not give them. I'm very confused by the security piece. Um, I get why if you're not a working royal, like it doesn't make sense for the taxpayer to pay security, blah, blah, blah. But there's like all sorts of nuance to their finances and what's like Charles' estate, what's Diana's, what's publicly funded. And Harry and Meghan have exhaustively spelled out how like they don't take public funding. They paid back everything with Frogmore. I think they really want to be very clear on their not taking from anybody. Um, but then I also didn't understand their obsession with it if they can afford it, right? It's like, well, why go through all this n nightmare, hassle, mess? If you want to sever ties and be independent anyway, could you just pay for your own security? And obviously it was very beautiful when Harry discussed, like, the only reason they were ever able to, like, get out and afford this after he, they were cut off financially in 2020 is because of his mother's inheritance. It's like she saw this coming, and I was like, oh, my God, goosebumps, tears. Oprah says, is this when she said, so why Oprah asked Megan, did the royal family express reluctance to eventually grant Archie, the grandson of the future sovereign, the title of prince? Did Do you think it's because of his race, Oprah asked? This article says Megan's answer left little data for assessment, but they don't quote it. But I wrote it in my notes because it was like so roundabout. It was. I wasn't able to follow up with why, but if that's the assumption you're making, it feels like a pretty safe one. I was like, oh, yep. I mean, Jesus, this would be the first person of color with a royal title. Like, what is she supposed to think? And I guess the other piece, too, is like, I'm, I'm confused by the, you know, they didn't tell me why, I didn't follow up. I don't know if Kate was also told she couldn't refute the story. It's like, are people not talking? It's like, if I admit, I, I don't know, I, I, and I'm projecting my ordinary circumstances on their extraordinary ones, but like, if there was a reason I had to do something out of protocol that had nothing to do with race or anything, and I knew that was a potential area of sensitivity, I would want to be crystal clear, crystal clear what it was about, why I was doing it, why it was necessary, why it hadn't changed, what I was doing about it to change it. You know what I mean? I just feel like this is where the humanity piece is lacking for me. This is where the family piece is lacking for me. How can there be so little communication or understanding about the motivations behind what they're doing? Protocol is protocol. I understand people that want to defend like and uphold like legacy and tradition and blah, 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 even though I'm not always that into a lot of it. Um, and if there is a non-race-based reason that this thing changed right when she was pregnant, if there is a specific reason why they were their son was the exception and having a royal title and having security and blah, 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 the direct grandson of the sovereign, like they should have just been very, very forthcoming about why and she just really did not seem clear on that and like I guess too it's hard for me to understand because I'm I'm so annoying I would just like no one would have fun in, on at Christmas until I was told exactly what had happened you know like I won't let things lie um but later in the interview too the other piece they discussed with race is even though Harry says he'll never say like you know what that conversation was uh, Harry says that, like, there were missed opportunities for his family to show some public support of Meghan. 
amidst their racist coverage because like even 72 women in, in parliament wrote an open letter condemning the outdated colonial undertones in newspaper coverage of Megan, yet no one from my family ever said anything over those three years. And that hurts, but I am also acutely aware of where my family stands and how scared they are of the tabloids turning on them. Which is just like, that's crazy to be that in bed with the tabloids and that you have to operate not out of the best interest of your own country, its citizens, and your own family, but to just not piss off the very toxic press that is taking down your own family members that you're like actively ignoring. I mean, the whole thing is so messed up when you think about it. Ugh. Okay, this is where it gets tough. I mean, it's always been tough, but um, so Megan says the media scrutiny got so bad that she just was not doing well. And that she was really ashamed to say it at the time and ashamed to have to admit it to Harry, especially because I know how much loss he suffered. But I knew that if I didn't say it, I would do it. It's, I don't want to, it's like. And she's talking about like self-harm. Um, she said, I don't, I just didn't want to be alive anymore. And that was a very clear and real and frightening constant thought. I mean. I, I, I was not expect this part was heavy and a lot and like I'm proud of her. It was very brave to talk about, especially in such a frank manner. There, there was a there was an unapologetic, confident way she approached the mental health subject that I really respect. It would be easy to dance to backpedal to. Um, uh, pad with flowery language but she said what it was and she spoke of the harsh realities of intrusive thoughts that are not you and that you recognize are not you but you acknowledge that you don't do not necessarily have control over them and that you need help and she approached a senior member of the royal institution uh, to go somewhere to get help but was told she couldn't because it would be a bad look so she is going to essentially her, yes, employer, but more importantly, like her family, right? Um, talking about having suicide, like suicidal ideations. And is her health care, her mental well-being, and quite frankly, her life is not a priority over making the institution look good. What? The actual fuck. What messaging does that send? What, what, what is she supposed to do? They, they were just comfortable sitting there and letting somebody else suffer and potentially die. They don't. They. It's one thing to not care about your reputation. <clears throat> it's one thing to not refute negative press. To, they, they did not care if she lived or died. Is what this says. And the same sentiment is what I've gleaned from the coverage of Diana's death. Nobody gave a shit about the fate of this person. They fiercely, staunchly protect their own, but leave the people who their own brings in in the crossfire comfortably. And it's so confusing to me. And Megan said that after she was told that 
you know, they, it would be a bad look for the institution. She went to human resources. I couldn't even believe the royals have human resources. And they told her they couldn't do anything for her because she wasn't a paid member of the royal family. I, like, and this is where I'm so confused by the finances of it all. Because I thought she, so she's a working royal, but she's not a paid royal. Um, and like this thing, the statements she said during this segment were gut wrenching. Like, I thought it would have solved everything for everyone. Uh, when talking about having suicidal thoughts, like, it's 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 really really sad. It's really sad. And the fact that people will dismiss and invalidate her even talking about this because she has, like, money and recognition, don't even, like, don't even bother reaching out to me with your justifications. Like, I don't want to hear it. It's ridiculous. It is so hard to admit stuff like this to yourself, much less your nearest and dearest, much less to the world. It is so scary to voice when you need help. And and where she couldn't represent people that she wanted to, perhaps in the past four years that she was silent, the, what she just did tonight for people that suffer from suicidal thoughts, suffer from depression, suffer from whatever mental health issue it is that are ashamed to talk about it, to see a woman in perhaps the most favorable position in the world in your eyes say that I've suffered, I had to talk about it, I couldn't get help, I felt trapped, this is how I felt, this is what I thought. Her saying that out loud to the world is so important. I would never want her to go through it to to reach the result of relaying that message. But the fact that she's willing to share that, despite the scrutiny she will inevitably get from countless insensitive individuals that do not understand that this is not something somebody wants for themselves this is not something somebody does for attention this is not something that somebody comes to terms with easily it's hard to admit to yourself it is impossible to admit to those around you and it sure as hell is not easy to admit it to the world but she's doing something huge here she is making a hell of a lot of people feel less isolated. She's empowering people to get out of their own head and to talk to somebody else and to know that being in their own head is not the answer. And she is saying, I am a person in perhaps the most objectively desirable of circumstances and I am still fucking miserable. And it is helping people get help, reach out, vocalize things, helping people feel like they're not alone, helping people to understand that they can't justify their feelings or, or say they deserve them or suggest that their external environment or circumstances should dictate the state of their mental health. Because if you idealize a princess's life and this is still happening, you know what I mean? Like these are important. This is really, really huge, important dialogue that we too often don't hear of until it's too late, until it's after the fact, until it's the loved ones of people they've lost. And like, my God, it is so important to see people, like she said, who have made it out the other side. It is so important to not label people with mental health issues as a monolith of this one static state of being. It is so important to destigmatize, to normalize, and to showcase an example of how these things can happen. And just as you did not see them coming and they feel... Uh, you know, permanent in real time, you can't see them leaving. You can't see out the other side. And it's so important to have other people sharing that and telling you that 
that even if you can't relate to, you can certainly understand the circumstances of and or see a little bit of yourself in them and or realize that like maybe it's not your fault, you know, maybe it's not your circumstances, maybe this you're, you have an illness that needs to be taken care of just as you would need to be taken care of if you had the flu or pneumonia, you know, it's like, I don't know, that was just, I just, I couldn't believe what I was watching. I was really proud of her. I felt really emotional about it. And I just, like, honestly, it's a great barometer for me. Anybody who would use that to say she wants attention, she's lying, she wants pity, she's crazy, she's this, she's that, like, it's an outstanding barometer for, like, you're a garbage person or you're a human being with compassion and feelings. I don't even need full empathy from you. But, like, the people that are so quick to label this as agendad are so sick. It's it's horrifying. I don't know. Um, so she said one of Diana's best friends ended up being a source of comfort and she was one of the few people that truly knew what she was going through. Um, and then she talked about, this was heartbreaking. She talked about this night at, uh, there was an event at Royal Albert Hall. She was wearing this really beautiful sequin dress. She was very pregnant. And she, she said it was earlier that morning. She'd first told Harry about her suicidal thoughts <clears throat> when he suggested he, she missed the event. She told him, I can't be left alone. And then in the photos from that night, she said, you can see how tightly he's holding her hand to comfort her in their like white knuckled hand holding. And I've actually noticed their body language. They shift the way they hold hands a lot from like cupping to intertwined to like thumb caressing. And they have very intimate language. And it's just interesting to look back on that. And that was something that people criticized them always holding hands, but like she's in that position because of him, because she loves him, wants to be with him, you know, like they they need each other. They have to support each other. And um, like she looked so beautiful and was wearing this dress. And like I just you would never effing know. It just it's like so it's like I, I know that this happens and it's not always what it looks like, but. It, when these things are so glamorous, it, it really just feels shocking on a different level. And it also is shocking that she does her own makeup. I just assume, I really literally assume they had like ladies in waiting and stylists and hair and makeup people constantly everywhere. Like I know Kate did her own makeup for a wedding. Um, but I don't know. I guess I just assumed. I mean, I, I my makeup looks so sloppy. Like two, like if I take one sip of something or start talking or like, I don't know like wipe my mouth of the napkin after gnawing into a chicken skewer and a past hors d'oeuvre stitch. Like my makeup's done. My eyes are smearing. Like I just goes to show how naturally beautiful and skilled at makeup. These people are, um, anyways. Yeah, it was, that was tough and heartbreaking and she did something very important by sharing. And I just thought it was really brave and impressive and sad. And I still need to think about it more. Um, and then when Harry talked about it, he said, I, I wasn't prepared for that. I went to a very dark place as well. I wanted to be there for her. Um, it is an interesting thing when you think about what that's like from his perspective, because her falling in love with him and being in these circumstances is this is like a source for her pain. But she, it, you, she also wouldn't trade it because she wants to be with him. This is what's impossible and what makes it difficult for 
to be the partner of somebody in these circumstances is um, it's hard when you're both an element of your relationship or partnership contributes to the environment that's somewhat of a source, but you're also the solution and the rock. Um, and he said he didn't go to family members to tell them Megan needed help because he was ashamed of admitting it. He said that the couple has some close friends who have been with them, but the family has this mentality that this life is just how it is. But for him, he said the difference was the race element. It wasn't just about Megan as a person, but what she represents for so many people. The way I saw it, there was an opportunity, many opportunities for my family to show some public support. For example, he said over seven. Oh, uh, well, this is the, the, did he say that in the context of Megan's mental health issues? I must have written this out of order. Now I'm gut checking with the New York Times about the order. Anyways, um, I think that Harry's, yeah, been through a lot of loss. He's been through mental health issues himself. Um, I'm sh I just, yeah, I'm sure this was incredibly difficult. And he talked about, you know, coming home from work from London every day and she'd be breastfeeding Archie and crying. And like, this was this really cruel, horrible time for her. And I just, I don't know. I felt so badly, but then in lighter, more exciting news, they revealed the gender of their second child. They're having a girl, which I'm excited. And if her name's going to be Diana, I will have a meltdown. Uh, but they're done after two kids. The baby is due in the summer. And then Oprah asks, um, like, how do the how will the palace react to this interview? And she says, I'm not going to live my life in fear. Uh, to answer your question, I don't know how they could expect after all this. Oh, this was in the teaser. After all this time, we would still just be silent if there was an active role. The firm is playing and perpetuating falsehoods about us. At a certain point, you're going to go, guys, just tell the truth. If that comes at the risk of losing things, that's there's a lot that's been lost already. I've lost my father. I lost a baby. I nearly lost my name. Oh, she was yeah, I did. Because I thought it was, I just thought the way she phrased it was interesting. Her being like, I can't take an Uber to a hospital. I can't just go get help. When I joined this family, like her keys, her passport, her driver's license, like everything was taken. Like, that's crazy. That's crazy. You lose all autonomy. Like, I don't think I realized it was to that degree. I mean, Prince Philip's still driving when he shouldn't be. Um, And... I thought it was interesting how she described like the intrusive thoughts as being clear and they're not abstract. They're methodical and that's not who I am. And I was like, wow, 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 wow. Um, that's a really interesting and important distinction. Um, not abstract. It's methodical. Like, what do you think? Like that. <clears throat> also, she was very pregnant and like, as we as I talked about with childless millennial learning about matrescence and stuff, like you're going through a huge, huge change with your body and life and mind and hormones and like I truly cannot imagine. Um and then Oprah was like, This interview is shocking, and she's like, I wasn't planning on saying anything shocking. I just wanted to say what happened. Um and that she wants to know, she wants people to know there's another side and life is worth living. Um, and then this is where they start to talk about leaving. And this is where it kind of, I feel like, you know, we kind of weed off in the interview. Um, and I need to go to bed. <laughs> what I'll probably do is, 
Oh, and then I, I pause because Greg and I talk about the Tyler Perry of it all. I mean, it's so generous, but it's just so interesting. They had to like take a favor, right? Use his house, use his security. Like how, what an alarming feeling. Like, what do you do? Where do you go? Who's protecting you? No one's on your side. Like, I do think I just was shocked that I thought that they just had a lot of uh, buffer this whole time. I didn't realize that they were like cut off as abruptly as they were with security and finances. Um, and the, the deeply problematic nature of, of alerting the public they were without security and knowing where they were was really scary too. So to get breathing room, they, they, Tyler Perry offered a security team and home, which is really, really nice and cool and go Tyler Perry. Um, and then they talk about how it's been spun in the wrong direction. They thought people, they thought they quit and walked away but they left because they were asking for help they weren't getting. It like wasn't about leaving the family. They wanted to step back from senior roles to be like other royals. And like I said earlier, the main thing is like these roles exist. They weren't reinventing the wheel. They were saying, this isn't working for everyone. We're in a lot of pain. You can't provide us with the help or support we need. We can take a step back. We can do it in a Commonwealth country like many royals do. And that, you know, when trying to take a breath from the constant barrage of scrutiny... His biggest concern was history repeating itself, referring to his mother's death, understandably. And what I was seeing was history repeating itself, but far more dangerous because you add race and social media in. To receive no help at all and to be told continuously, this is how it is. This is just how it is. We've all been through it. It was frustrating. Yeah, that's like the bullshit form of hazing nobody needs to do. And the toxicity of anybody who allegedly loves you Making you go through something just because they went through it is bullshit. <laughs> it, it is. It's hazing. If you have the opportunity to improve or make something better or more comfortable for a person you love, wouldn't you go to great lengths to provide that for them? That is what I don't understand about sorority recruitment or the royal family, apparently. Um, and when she said, like, okay, the biggest question, like, point blank, like, why did you leave? And he said, lack of support and lack of understanding, stemming from both the UK's tabloids, vicious attacks, and a lack of support from the firm. And they said the Queen was not blindsided by the decision, as she was rumored to be, that in Canada he had three conversations with her and two conversations with his father. But then he said, before he stopped taking my calls, and that was like a <gasps> like wine spit out moment for me. There was like a few moments I was like, oh my God, did he just say that? Um. And the, his and Charles said, "Can you put this all in writing? What your plan is?" Uh, and then they talk about the kind of invisible contract, the press, and that his family is like scared of the tabloids turning on them. And like, and then Megan talks about how they have like Christmas parties and invite the press, and that there's this like really close relationship where they're afraid of them, but they also have like an element of control that they just didn't ever exercise to protect them yet they're controlled by their level of fear of what the pre press could do to them. It's a little, it's a little confusing and it's interesting because I thought this whole interview was going to be about the press, but kind of wasn't. Yeah. So, okay. There's like, there's some more layers and like digging I can do. Um, so like Harry, Harry's Prince Harry, he never thought he would have his security team removed. So they cut him off financially in early 2020 and a security 
And Megan, this is where Megan keeps talking about the letters and like she must have received and like wrote a letter to his family member saying like, I get if you don't want me or Archie to have security, but please keep Harry's in place, keep my husband safe. And she was told that's not possible, but it's kind of like, okay, this institution, it's also your family and also don't they have control? So how maddening is it to hear your own father, your own brother, your own grandfather, whoever it is say, sorry, my hands are tied, but like they're not tied because you make the calls. You know, like, well, what is this BS broader echelon of protocol that people are tied to that they allegedly also dictate? It just doesn't seem right. Um, and I get that, like, if they're not working royals. I understand there's like a lot to be said about the security and the cost and blah, blah, blah. But like the way Harry put it, he's like, I was born into this. Like, I thought that was it, it's kind of just like an assumed level of protection, maybe. And again, they didn't quit. They wanted to just step back. Um, and it, um, maybe the security piece was like leverage, like, okay, you're going to lose this protection if you completely step back thinking that they ultimately wouldn't, but they were able to, you know, financially figure it out. I'm just, I'm so interested in how much the level of security they need costs. Cause it has to be 24 seven. Right. Also who, who isn't, is that a really interesting job when you think about it and a, like kind of boring job you have to be like, it's like most of the time nothing happens. You have to be so alert. I always think of Kim Kardashian's bodyguard that went to the nightclub with Courtney and left Kim alone for like one second. So Harry talked about that uh, he had the financial resources that uh, Princess Diana left him and that they wouldn't have been able to leave or figure out their new life um, and that she basically, you know, paid for it and saw it coming, which is just like crazy to think of how what a like weird and abstract it is, but at the same time it makes so much sense that she kind of ultimately saved him and prepped for this. And it's, you know what I mean? If we're going to get spiritual about it. Um, he said, I'm just really relieved and happy to be sitting here talking to you with my wife by my side, because I can't begin to imagine what it must've been like for my mother going through this process by herself all those years ago. It's been unbelievably tough on the two of us, but at least we have each other. And then he says he's spoken to his grandmother more in the last year than he has for many, many years. And that his father's now taking his calls. There's a lot to work through. And I feel really let down because he's been through something similar. He knows what this pain feels like. And Archie, he's Archie's, Archie's his grandson. But at the same time, I always love him. There's a lot of hurt that's happened. And I will continue to make it one of my priorities to try and heal the relationship. They only know what they know. And that's the thing. I've tried to educate them through the process I have been educated. And with Prince William, he said, I love William to bits. He's my brother. We've been through hell together and have a shared experience, but we're on different paths. He Then that's that was said last year, but I was glad Oprah followed up. And he said, we're basically just like living separately and that's our status. So basically they're not talking. I don't know, you guys. Um, and when asked if they have any regrets, Harry said no. And Megan said she regrets believing the firm when she was told she'd be protected, which is like one last, you know what I mean? I kind of appreciate that she didn't say, like, I regret something that, like, puts them in a good light. It's like, no, I regret not being smarter about this the first time, not realizing that they were worse than I thought they were. Like, a lot of little notes I don't really know where to place. Like, like the relationship between the monarchy and the press... I'm very interested in Harry saying everything changed after Australia and that her, his family got to see how incredible she is at her job. And it brought back memories. And I was like, what? Like, are brought back memories of Diana in Australia? And if so, like, what do you mean? W was Kate jealous of Megan? Camilla? Like, 
Oprah says, were there hints of jealousy? And then he didn't answer. He said he wishes they'd all learn from the past to see how effortless it was to be able to connect with people. And then he rightfully calls her one of the greatest assets they could have asked for, but doesn't really say what happened. And that's when he talks about he inherited the risk and he never thought he'd lose his security detail. Um, I also wrote down that when Megan said there was no training on how to be a royal, Harry seemed uncomfortable when she said there's no training, there's no help, and he kind of got cut off. Toward the end, Oprah, Harry, and Megan were all cutting each other off at different points, and I was almost shocked that they didn't edit that out. But it wasn't an overproduced special. I thought it was really well made. It wasn't overteased. It wasn't overdramatized in between commercial breaks. Um, and then at the end, you could see them like really wanted to get their point across. Uh, like when she's asking follow-up questions about you know, what they ultimately wanted to do with their title and to step back and make, I was like, Oprah, it exists. Like the job title exists. Um, and you can just tell he's like very let down by Charles. He wants to speak positively as, of his grandmother. It's almost like they said so little about Will that I'm like, did something really messed up happen there? Like, is he the source of like this horrible stuff? I just assumed we were talking about Charles and Camilla because they just already kind of seem, I don't know, I really know anything about Camilla, but because of the crown, Charles seems terrible. Uh, Harry's considerably more closed off about the skin, skin tone conversation because it's obviously damning because it's obviously horrible. And it's like hard to protect people in that context, but I assume the only reason he's doing that is because one of those people is about to be king at some point um, in our lifetime. I wrote down Oprah's given six eggs to walk away with. Couldn't give her a dozen. I don't know. I just think of Oh, when they had that home video at the beach, I cried. I don't know why. It's like Megan in sneakers. She's just throwing a ball for the dogs. And Archie's with his little elbow patches. And it's in black and white. And I felt misty when Harry talked about Archie on the back of a bike seat, just like waving his arms. And how he didn't get to live that life growing up. And then... I lost my mind when they said that when people leave, Archie says drive safe because I just think you think about that in the broader context of Diana and how scary uh, car rides must be and triggering and, you know, to think of being chased by the press at points. And I don't know, there's just something very dark and sweet at the same time about a two-year-old understanding comprehending and communicating to drive safe when someone not driving safe is the source of the greatest tragedy of harry's life you know and was very sweet so it basically oprah's like kind of communicating back like William and Charles, like you mentioned, are kind of like trapped and, you know, Megan comes into your life. Do you think in some way she saved you? Um, and he talks about how, like, without fail, there are like bigger forces at play. It's like undeniable where, when and how these things happened and talks about basically like how proud he is of her delivering the, the quote I played at the beginning of the episode Safely delivering Archie despite all the stress, how she'd come home and she'd be crying breastfeeding and like the incredible emotional distress she's been under and blah, blah, blah. And then Megan says, um, like he saved all of us. He called it like we had to find a way and he made a decision that saved her life. And it's just sweet and like not sweet. It's like what I hope any good father or husband or 
loved one would do. What's what people should do? Be fighting for, vouching for, advocating for, believing that the, the sorrows, the troubles of their loved ones, advocating for them, getting them out of the situations um, and coming out the other side. It was just nice to hear. And I think in a weird way, it's really late. I don't want to be emotional because I'm so cheesy and I always am. And Oprah sharing more tomorrow and what's going to have to happen is I'm probably going to put this on Patreon now. And then since I spent time on this instead of other stuff, so probably need to be this week's episode, but then I have to put ads in it during the broadcast calendar. Anyway, so you might have already heard this week's episode. It might be a different one, but also I'll probably add, I'll probably take stuff out and also add like Oprah's additional commentary tomorrow and any like thoughts I've let aerate um, later this week if need be. Um, but I think the bottom line too is like the fairy tale isn't being whisked off to a palace, isn't living a life of shiny things and glamour and luxury. It's not the parties. It's not the wedding. It's not the recognition and fame. The reason I respect this so much is the the fairy tale is a mutually respectful, trusting, loving partnership where you don't just happily exist because there is an absence of hardship. You work hard to happily exist despite there inevitably being hardship in life. The focus of so many fairy tales, it's it, it's in what you get. The circumstances and environment that being a princess or marrying a prince or being royalty or you know whatever all those all those ancillary things they come along with the shiny things that are a product of shallow living that i i too would argue you should be fearful of the a true fairy tale of meeting the right person isn't in what you get it's in who you find and like all things considered at the end of the interview, after the hell they've gone through, I didn't see a couple deeply regretting their partnership, which could arguably be the one thing that could have saved them from this specific anguish, right? Like, I saw a couple that genuinely loves and respects each other, that values their partnership and what it adds to their life more than it resents uh, the circumstances it brought about because the truth is our, our circumstances change our environments change um the the things that you know the shiny things that come along with a person or the ideal circumstances or the money or the whatever it is um looks you know any anything on the surface like these things fade these things change these are variables and when you're like young, you want things to be fantasy driven and lofty and arbitrary and you don't need things that are stable and you kind of feed off of excitement and temporary nature and lust and all of these wondrous intoxicating things that make a relationship deeply exciting and meaningful and valuable at the onset. But I think the difference between that sort of situation and what i'd argue now as an adult is a true happily ever after are two people that realize the lie and the mismanagement of expectations that even exists within a term like happily ever after two people that are regular human beings realizing life throws a lot at you that you can't control and the more you face it head on with transparency with candor with trust with respect 
the more you sort through stuff together and not be in denial about what's happening, the more you work toward a solution, you know, advocate for one another, unwaveringly support one another. That is what's deeply attractive. It's, it's not about being a princess or being a royal. Um, my final takeaway was that when it comes to a great love story, it's not about what a situation can do for you and social climbing your way through it. It's more about finding someone you would do anything for and vice versa. And I think they seem like a really great couple. And I think that all things considered, they don't seem to resent the circumstances that brought them to this incredibly difficult situation. And that just speaks to how strong their partnership is, right? That they still want to be together despite everything else. And I'm really happy for their little girl. I'm really happy for their family. I would hope that my husband would do everything in his power to get me to a safe and happy and healthy place, just like Harry did for her. And I don't think them being famous or wealthy should rob them of their uh, right and entitlement uh, to their humanity and for us to treat them respectfully. And um, I think this is a really important historical moment that is going to mark a shift in the royal family in the way they approach press and the way they do a lot of things. And I'm interested to see what happens. And I ultimately hope it's for the better. And I hope it helps, you know, Kate and Will and the Heads Up organization, like put their money where their mouth is and really genuinely not only value the optics of uh, pretending to care about mental health, but of actually protecting and caring for their own. So maybe the people that they serve when he is a king and she is queen consulate one day will actually legitimately believe that they care about people. <laughs> I don't want to oversimplify our, uh, 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 the situation. I'm every it's like the truth is a funny thing everyone's perceptions are their truth and some things are the hard and fast truth and it's like kate has been thrust into a really difficult situation just like megan was but she's can't have the same response to it and like you know obviously there's no excuse for anything racially driven but in terms of the uncomfortable tension and rifts that you know it's just it's so hard to know it's so hard to know and i kate will never open up in this way i don't even think she could if she wanted to and we'll never know but um I think it's clear that they make their side of things like known sneakily through the press. Right. Um, also Kate was like, wasn't she like two or three weeks postpartum at Megan's wedding? That's an interesting other thing too, but anyway, I gotta go. Okay. I, uh, if this is the same episode that airs this week, I'm sorry, but it'll probably be a little different because I'm interested to see what Oprah says this morning. I'm, uh, very tired. Sorry for the rambling. I'm not going to have time to listen back to this. So I hope it was okay. Please tell me in the comments what you think, what your thoughts are. I still need to go through the Facebook group, all the things. But thank you for your patience. Um, hope you enjoyed. Love you so much. Take care of yourselves. And as always, oh, wait, go to my show, will you, please? <laughs> I'm so tired. <laughs> uh, seriously, please. <laughs> On locationlive.com slash be there in five. It's Thursday at 9.05 p.m. It's called Bar Cart Sports. It's a play on Barstool. I'm doing a lot of like plays on the wave sports are presented because pop culture is my sport and I think it'll be fun. I hope it'll be good. Um, I just want to entertain and as Megan said, uplift and have fun. And um, the live shows are a really cool opportunity for me to present information in a different way. 
I was like brought into my agency last year, like tour. And then I never got to tour. And this, that the last show in November and this show are like the only things I've been doing that are kind of in the direction of something I want to ultimately do more of. And it's a really great opportunity to connect with you guys in a different way to present pop culture information in a different way. That's like comedic and more thought out and less not actually definitely not less random than the podcast, but uh, <laughs> a little more organized. <laughs> and um, there's all sorts of fun things I've never talked about before that we'll go over. So it'll be fun, you know, grab a friend safely on zoom or in your bubble pregame, take a pic, send it to me. And uh, I wish I could hang out and eat charcuterie with you guys and make it so cool. And people have like watch parties or zoom parties. It's just like, I can't even believe anybody would gather on my behalf. It's like deeply meaningful in a way that if I talk about it at 3am, I will cry. Um, but I love you guys. Thank you for your support. Everything else. Wow. I literally can't form thoughts. Okay. As always, <laughs> let me know your thoughts and I'll let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear. Stand by me.